Well, hello and welcome to another podcast with the Free Speech Union. My name is Jonathan. I'm part of the team here. And today we're sitting down with some of the council members that we have, our our board of directors, as it were, to discuss the newsletter that we put out uh, at the beginning of this week, some of the major issues that we're working on, and just really how it relates to free speech. So we're sitting down with Dane Giroux, a writer and fantastic creative mind who helps lead our work, and Annie O'Brien, who is a comms expert and just an all-round good gal. Now, today we're going to be talking about this public servant that I've been working with who, uh, who's who been censored from a, a, by a senior ministry official uh, for using the word male-bodied. It, it seems like something out of Orwell to me. You know, mm. when, when I saw the, the letter that this um, this individual received, it just, it just struck me that this is why an organization like ours is so needed. I think a lot of people underestimate the, the number of people, whether it's in, in universities or in the public service or local government, wherever it is really, that are actually facing some real opposition to their free speech now. So, so Dane, why don't you kick us off? What was your impression of, of the story of the, of the public servant here? Well, from what I can gather, it, it happened at a sort of seminar run by Inside Out, uh, who are a um, uh, LGBT. Uh, they say advocate for for you know from their perspective clearly, <laughs> which is a very you know they have a very particular political view of of these issues. And uh, this uh, person uh, had had asked a question of them at the end and, and had brought up male bodied and then got taken aside by a boss that's correct have i got this right that is correct yeah she was at the seminar where they were um being uh, spoken to about transgender rights and, sh- and she raised a question referring to male bodied transgender woman uh this is the term that the human rights commission uses to de- describe the very same uh concept that that this woman was discussing so it, it was a surprise for her when she received this very uh threatening bullying letter from a senior public servant telling her it really Really was not accepted in in that ministry, and, and I'm just baffled by this. Well, well, the language moves very, very quickly in this sphere, doesn't it? But the other point for me, because I come from a minority group, a um, like ethnic religious minority group or whatever, but where I get very concerned about this stuff is I don't think this actually helps the transgender community at all, because if people want to engage on these issues, even if they even if they want to you know, they've got a bit of starch in, in them and they really want to have a crack because, you know, often understanding starts with misunderstanding <laughs> and then, you you know, you take the journey to get there. Um, if if people feel like they're walking on eggshells or may use the right term, they just won't engage and that's won't right. talk. That's right, self-censorship. And they, yep. That's right, they'll, they'll self-censor and they may not, but that, that self-censorship could even go as far as I will avoid that person in the office least I say the wrong thing. Mm, that's right. You know, and that's it's just... You shut down speech, you shut down a whole lot more than that as well. That's it, how we interact with each other. Censorship really impacts on relationships. Yeah. And, and people really... Yeah, it, people don't get their heads around that. It's mm, like, mm. as a Jew, the last thing I want is, is, is people outside of my community to be afraid 
to engage with me. Well, and what baffles me even beyond, you know, the substance of the presentation that she was engaging in is, is just that this deputy chief executive, when we sat down with him, we, we engaged in some representation for them and are continuing to push into this case because we think it's entirely unacceptable. But when we sat down for our first meeting with them, she was intransigent. She, she could not accept that as a senior public bureaucrat, three tiers above this advisor in a ministry, that her sending this letter would have a chilling effect on speech. And, you know, as the Free Speech Union, we we say have the debate. It's fantastic that transgender activists are there making their case using their speech. Brilliant. And what we need is to have the right to respond in speech. Annie, what are your thoughts on this? Well, uh, you've kind of just um, delved into what I think is the core issue here, and it's power. Um, so this, this DCE, um, like you said, three tiers above the advisor, um, has really um, exerted power uh, to chill her speech and um, also to compel speech. This is how you should speak. And um, what I would say about these advocacy groups coming in is that when there's only allowed a one-way dialogue, so they're only allowed to talk to you, you're not allowed to engage back and give your own opinion, the ministry is in effect choosing who is the authority on that subject and who cannot be questioned. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that this advisor, when she was talking about male-bodied, was actually asking um, on behalf of her sister, who's a lesbian, um, about why um, she could not say that she was only attracted to female-bodied people as such. Um, And and as a lesbian myself, I I sympathise with that because I'm really uncomfortable with that aspect of this activism. So I would like to know who gave this ministry the authority to decide that that particular person from that particular group has the authority to say what a lesbian is, has the authority to say how we should refer to things, because they don't. And it would be fine if they then opened up to every other view that um, wanted to, to have their say, but they don't. They say, no, you, you're not allowed to have your say. It's unacceptable. You've offended this person. So it's it's a lot about power. And in our public service in particular, where this seems to be happening quite a bit, this kind of um, censoring, it's supposed to be an apolitical space. They're well, supposed the, to serve the government of the day. That's right. Um, and serve the people of New Zealand. There's not supposed to be an agenda of any kind, whether it's a specific agenda or if it's a overall kind of political leaning. Um, and so in this case, um, they've made a very clear demonstration of we align with this political view. And that's well, a problem. And, and that's exactly right. You, you make the distinction there. This isn't about this DCE. This isn't about this ministry. This is about the public service and, and the reason it exists. And mm-hmm. without free and frank advice, without an open conversation that tolerates and actually relishes in competing ideas that actually progress these policy issues forward. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the public service is defunct at that. You know, it's just repeating the same lines and, and the same orthodoxies that it's been pushed down from the top. And so this isn't about really transgender rights. This is about, are we allowed to have the discussion? Are we allowed to respectfully disagree? And when it comes to controlling language, you know, once we are having prescribed compelled language, the dis- the mm-hmm. debate is over. We, we If we're not allowed to disagree on our own terms, we're not really allowed 
allowed to disagree at all. And so that's why we're going to continue to push into this issue. We're going to continue to um, raise it with uh, the senior authorities and appeal on behalf of this woman. But I just want to note, if if you work in the public service, and um, well, if you do, I'm sure this is this is not going to come as a surprise to you. Uh, we hear from so many people that this is just um, run of the mill, really, in a lot of these ministries. But if you have a particular case that you think your speech has been um, pushed aside or overrun, contact us. We'd love to consider offering whatever support we can. You know, it's not only in Wellington, though, it's not only uh, at the central government level where we see this kind of censorship coming through. Uh, more and more, we've been approached by local councillors as well. And this is an issue that we've reported on a fair bit now. We've had some other council members run roundtables with councillors from around the country where codes of conduct have been used, have been weaponized and politicized to shut down democratic representation. And and this is a really concerning uh uh, trend in my mind where we see the chief executives of councils, unelected bureaucrats yet again kind of thinking they can control the narratives within their little fiefdoms and actually shut down democratic responsibility and representation for, from councillors who've been put there by the people. Annie, why don't you uh, run us through what's happened here? So um, obviously we don't expect local government and um, councils not to have any code of conduct. It's quite appropriate that business places have, um, you know, expectations of uh, how they should behave. However, um, in the case of the councils um, and the elected officials in particular, this has been taken um, to a degree in which it inhibits them being able to do the job they're elected to do. That's right, and, yeah. And you mentioned that, um, you know, these CEs and the bureaucrats are kind of throwing their weight around. And what is forgotten is that they're actually supposed to work for the councillors. The councillors are who um, the people elect to make these decisions and the CE is there to enable them to, you know, do their job. Um, the reverse is happening with these codes of conduct. So we've That's got exactly councillors right. who are basically being handed... Um, notices saying that they've had a breach of the code of conduct um, and it might be something as small as um, saying something on their social media that that um, the CE decided they didn't like um, and, and it really has created a situation where a number of councillors now have, have been, you know, have supposedly breached these codes um, and they're therefore restricting their speech so it's that chilling effect um, and and we've also got, um, I guess, um, situations where they're being politicised, where um, the bureaucrats are able to use censure via the Code of Conduct in order to shut down councillors. Um, and it's really not how it should operate. One case that I've heard of um, was... Uh, some councillors were instructed not to engage with uh, constituents on the issue of vaccinations. Now, at the moment, like it or not, vaccinations are a massive issue in this country. Um, and people should be free to talk to their elected officials of any level about their concerns or with their questions. And um, it shouldn't be a, a matter for censoring councillors um, and saying that they, they cannot engage in that space. Well, so um, It comes yeah. down again to if you control the language... You control mm -hmm. the story. If, if mm -hmm. you can control how people engage on this issue, then you can control what people will do. And and people go, oh well, we, you know, we're not saying you can't talk to anyone. Just don't talk to these people in this way. And and that's that's the issue. Um, mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right, Annie. This is, I mean, 
Thankfully for me, and I'm a simple guy, these are not complex issues. I go, I thought bureaucrats were there to serve the council and serve Mm. the people, and the people have have elected some representatives. You know, this is how our democracy functions. And that's where just the, the message that we keep pushing is that free speech is not just a right like many other rights. You know, whether whether it's freedom of the press or freedom of religion or freedom of conscience, all of these are founded on our free speech. And once mm-hmm. we start attacking free speech, we actually see our entire democratic human rights approach falls apart. And that's why it's such a crucial thing for us to stand against. Exactly. And you hear, um, again, without naming names, we've heard from councillors who've been one, one-term councillors who came in with all the best intentions, um, really qualified, fantastic people that you'd love to have on your council, saying there is no way in hell I will go through this again because I cannot do what I, I thought I was coming here to do. I'm being silenced, I'm being controlled by people who weren't elected. So it is really something where we need to look at what is an appropriate code of conduct that says, you know, these are workplace rules. You can't behave in these ways because that's what all we Wear trousers is. to meetings. Yeah. That to me is a code of conduct. <laughs> Anything else, you know, that I would understand. You know, yeah. that person, they're on their own. So if they, they come to us, sorry, buddy, you're on your own. You've but got to like, wear trousers. <laughs> yeah, you should wear trousers. Um, but, but you know, like in the case of Michael Laws, you know, because we, we can name names there because he was on the podcast, the Free Speech Union podcast, and took us through it. That one, all he really did was was make a comment, I think, on social media, correct me if I'm wrong here, mm. getting the details wrong, and he just said, oh, that was embarrassing because the um, the council, had, it, it was to do with a, a, a lake or something, wasn't it? Where yeah, you know. The details of his case aren't, aren't related here, but but exactly, no. it was a public comment that he made that reflected on the council, and then yeah. the council said, "You're insulting our staff," and he said, "I'm not yeah. insulting your staff. You just made a mistake. That's all well, I'm saying." They were, and it was embarrassing. And you know, and if something is embarrassing, own up to it. <laughs> like, own up to it. We need to know. That's right. We're, we're paying our rates. That's we're right. Voting for you. You know, I mean, it's concerning that they don't that they want to. Oh no, we can't have anyone know that this is embarrassing. Well, that, um, well, see, and, and I think Michael Laws's case is is it's sort of really it's really bald, like yeah. just how it was it was done to cover up a screw up. Well, and in my mind, I think it it relates to just a very basic level of leadership as well. Whether it's you know for, whether it's this DCE with the with the advisor and the ministry in Wellington, or whether it's with these bureaucrats, you know. A leader does not deflect and reject. They own up to it and they say, yep, we made a mistake. I don't, you know, a a real leader won't mind the truth coming out. They won't mind people discussing the narrative and and actually having... No, no, they're going to mind. They're going to mind, but it's part of the job. Oh, yeah, that's right. They they, they own it, yeah. As a writer, I mind proofreading because (laughs) it annoys me. But it's part of my job. Yeah. And the same with these guys. It's like, look, you screwed up there. Michael Laws makes a comment. No, oh, that's embarrassing. Yeah, because it was. And we also, need what to a know waste that. of and, and waste you of resources. Make... Well, that's you right. Know? I think we we need yeah. to remember that each of these uh, codes of conduct complaints uh, are about fifteen thousand dollars worth of ratepayers. And I've spoken to uh, a number of councillors who have had numerous complaints against them. We're working with one right now uh, who has had thirteen complaints brought against them. Oh. You know, that's that's an enormous amount of money. When where you go, well, maybe the councillors just just 
actually he needs to rein himself in. And I guess you could argue that. Um, but but in the majority of these complaints, they haven't been upheld and he hasn't been in any substantial breach. So really, it's just showing that these are being politicized. They're being weaponized. And it's people trying to take down those who are just actually standing up for ratepayers. That's really concerning. And, and, and see, mm. and the other thing is, if you've got a repeat offender like that, that should surprise no one. So any liberal politicians listening to this, do not be surprised when people push back. If they know you're going after democracy, there will be that guy or that gal who just really has a crack at you. Yeah. You know, it, it'll be it's red rag to a bull to a lot of people. It won't keep you safe putting these sorts of codes of conduct in there because the Michael Laws of the world and all these other people will, you know, They'll have a go at you. I yeah. mean, why they picked a fight with Michael, I'll, I'll never understand. He's probably the last person on the planet you want to pick a fight with in, in this sort of arena, you know. But they did, and it was stupid, and it didn't work. You know, T- talking about um, now, now, you know, let's let's not quote me on this, but talking about stupid councils. Um, <laughs> when we say a human rights bill, usually we think of legislation which protects our fundamental liberties, but. It, for the Christchurch City Council recently, um, a human rights bill just means exactly that. It means money that they're expecting ratepayers to pay in order to exercise their right. Last week, the, the Christchurch City Council sent a bill to the Freedoms and Rights Coalition for more than $14,000 for traffic management fees. Um, and another bill is going to be sent out uh, in, in time to come. Now, now. This just is mind-boggling in my mind. Like, I was I was reading through the Bill of Rights, like the actual Bill of Rights, nineteen ninety, the Act in Parliament, and it says section sixteen, freedom of protest, and it says end of story. New Zealanders <laughs> have a right to freedom of protest, and like I thought they would like elaborate on it and explain it. It's just like it's fairly cut and dry stuff. And we we yeah. see other councils. You know, the Wellington City Council had the exact same organisation and almost the exact same time frame do the exact same thing, and they came out and said, "Of course, we're not going to charge them." Wellington is a proud tradition of protest. That, that, well, they've been a bit censorious before, but yeah, no, well, good well, to that, see that, them change. No, 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 that, 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 is, that is true. They, they, they pick and choose sometimes, um, and, and maybe that's something you want to pick up on again later, Annie. But uh, but but in this case, they said, of course, we're not going to charge yeah. them. And so I don't, I just don't get it. Where Christchurch City Council gets off trying to trying to uh, put this on the Freedoms and Rights Coalition. We've gone to them. We've we've done a, a, a information request for a whole number of things, but one of them is. How many other people have you charged for protests over the past five years? I, I would be surprised if there's another organization no, that they have tried to charge. Th- this, this is just totally about what this group is saying, mm. not their right to say it. And for us, doesn't you know, matter. We, we have released our statement on COVID, but we believe in their rights to, to gather their right to protest, their right to make their case. And, and that's really what is being opposed here. You know, it, it, you don't need a big imagination to see how councils could abuse this. And they inflate costs and, and they, they add all these other things in it. And before we know it, only the rich and wealthy would be able to afford to protest. Well, that's and- the point, right, is that usually it's not the rich and wealthy who are in positions where protest is their only means of challenging power. That's right. They aren't usually the ones who need to take to the streets. It tends to be those who cannot afford a $14,000 bill every time they they go out with a placard. And um, I think it's it's anti-free speech, it's anti-democracy, and it's taking the piss, frankly, because they, they, like you say, I doubt very much whether if it was... um, 
a cause they were more favourable to, a climate change march perhaps, they exactly. would not be sending a bill out. Yeah. Um, you know, the kids who, who skipped school and went marching, I bet they didn't get a bill. Um, and so it goes to the fact that it is a council being politicised again um, and, and it's actually not got the right to pick and choose who protests so long as there's no laws being broken. There's no one it, committing it is, violence. <laughs> it is very disturbing that people today, or there are factions of people, and there would have always been factions of people, but they probably wouldn't have been. It's, it's surprising that some of it is coming from the left today when the left was so grounded on protest. That's right. You know. In, um, in a previous yeah. generation, you think, imagine the outroar if during the Springboks tour, some city councils had tried to charge for that, you know, or, or any imagine during uh, the, the, the um, marriage equality bill, if when mm. people were advocating for that, that came with a massive overhead because mm. you were doing that in, in a council who didn't agree with you. You know, this just flies in the face fundamentally of what it means for us to be allowed to have these debates. And I, I, I'm just sick of it, to be honest. It's enough. And, and, and well, the thing is, you know, like we we submitted against the safe zones around abortion clinics, and there was a lot of discussion about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and a lot of people, and I know a, a lot of people will say to me, "Oh, really? Well, you know, uh, but you know, these these young women going in there and they're being harassed by people, or e- even just seeing." someone in silent prayer is distressing, you know, and it, it can be distressing. When I made that submission, what I said was forget about, forget about abortion right now. Just concentrate on the protest because once you can limit one, that's you exactly will, they right. will limit others. Yep. You know? I mean, it's the same thing. I think I used the example um, to some friends of mine who were really upset about my stance on it, which was um, protecting the right to protest. Um, and I said, well, you know, previously during the John Key government, you protested an arms conference. What if in an extension of that policy or that law, the government decided that for the safety of the rich and powerful people going to the arms conference, you needed to be 200 metres away and couldn't be chained to the fence and everything that you did. Mm. Um, And it's actually not much of a jump. Um, I know that for feminists in particular, we feel acutely about these issues around um, bodily autonomy and that kind of thing, Um, but we have to look at the bigger picture. Um, And if we allow the power um, to the powerful um, to, to dictate what kind of protest is acceptable, we are just asking for it to be more widely applied and for when someone perhaps we don't agree with gets into power, um, they then have the right to do the kind of tattooing with the with the law. And, and and I think the other thing too is that um, I mean that's th- th- these these are all great points, but there's there's also a sense that there are people that feel that you can sweep dissent under the carpet or out the door <laughs> with a law, but you can't. You yeah. can't do that. You know, by banning uh, the the any protest um, or, or that protest presence outside an abortion clinic doesn't mean that, you know, eventually they'll just give up completely and no one will agree with it. The, the thing with free speech, which a lot, a lot of people don't uh, grasp, is that it, you know, in a liberal society, none of these issues are ever truly settled. That's right. They can come back. They mm. can come, you know, and if they do, they do, you know, and you just got to be prepared 
to deal with them again. You have to keep your sword sharp for that. Um, a really good example, I, I believe, is Holocaust denial, you know, mm-hmm. where a lot of people will say, well, we shouldn't even have to engage on this anymore. No, that's not the way liberal societies work. There will always be these people that want to challenge it. And, we and they're popped up from a different side now. It's the left that's got lots of um, Holocaust denial now, whereas perhaps it used to be the right. So you kind of have to be um, ready for politics to evolve. You have to be ready for politics to evolve and you have to be ready to have these arguments every generation sometimes. Mm-hmm. And with these people that are, I mean, you know, they, they won't say they're anti-vax. That's not the official line. They'll say that they're pro-choice, right? If you mm-hmm. want to be vax, be vax. If you don't want to be vax, whatever it is, whatever it is. The idea that you can just, you know, crush them with a fine and they'll just go away. It, it, it's just so naive. It's stupid because actually it, you end up emboldening them. And um, and also the more the government swings its weight around and um, interferes in these matters, the more people go, see, we told you the government is manipulating things and they're doing this and they're doing that and it gets more people to believe it because they go yeah. well yeah the government is you know throwing its weight around that's exactly right not not, not only is it bad for the discussion and bad for our fundamental rights mm. it's actually also just a really poor strategic move yeah. because it, it confirms people's worst fears and so mm. that that's why you know you just got to think gosh you're, you're, you're just making the cause so much harder for yourself you know mm. the, the, the last item in our newsletter here any something that you were particularly involved in it was it was a blog, a blog post that we ran uh where you were talking about the sean hendy and Susie wiles employment yeah. case with the <laughs> University of Auckland, and and I just want to make it really clear that that we stand with uh, Hendy and Wiles' rights to make the comments publicly that they have to to engage from the perspective that they have, and to do so without major harassment and 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 kind of vile threats. That is totally beyond the pale of. Uh, free speech but but there's a, there's a there's an irony isn't there in in this case in that there uh, is. wiles and hindi are the ones that have led the pile on uh against uh, the the listener seven who who wrote the piece on matauranga maori and and you know it, it would be nice when we're standing up for these people to have their their freedom of speech protected if they would give that courtesy to other people as well yeah, it's a, it's a live by the sword, die by the sword a bit. I, I had to say I kind of went, oh, here we go. Um, when I first saw them, them kind of uh, talk about the fact that they're getting harassed. And um, it's not nice to be harassed. Um, I certainly don't enjoy it myself. Um, but as public figures, unfortunately, it is something that can be expected. What cannot be tolerated is violent threats and that kind of thing. We can absolutely say that that is different. But people um, disagreeing with them and maybe even, you know, saying a few unkind things, that's not illegal. It shouldn't be illegal. And I don't know how they would expect their employer to protect them from that. However, I do think that um, the university... Uh, has got a few things wrong. Um, They kind of, um, they tried to argue that um, science communications was not part of their job and so they weren't required to to kind of look after them. Where um, Susie in particular, um, sorry, Dr. Wiles, she has in her contract that about, you know, 40% of her time is science communications. So 
the university hasn't handled this great, but the actual point, um, I guess, that I'd like to make here is that um, perhaps these two high-profile academics would like to reflect on how they have contributed to a negative cancelling environment by um, trying to suppress the, the speech and the work of the, the listener seven, as it were, um, and how um, it, it's, there is a little bit of irony in them expecting to be protected from negative, um, I guess, responses. You know, the people that they accused were called racist. One of them is, well, I know them, one of the main professors is Māori himself, so it's all very And has spent pure. 30 years <laughs> teaching kōpapa Māori, you know. Yeah. And, and, you know, just the other day, like two days ago, um, there was a quite a demented tweet about, uh, you know, the, that racist letter, and Sean Hendy liked the tweet. So, you know, he, mm. he knows these people, yeah. but he's still feeding this idea to cover himself. You know exactly, and, um, so and, and you know, and Dr. Wiles is not, you know, she she's misinformed on us happily, mm-hmm. you know. Yep. So, yeah, the problem is that this is again an issue of politicization. The pair of them um, feel they are on the side of God, as it as it were, not literally, but you know, they it's that same kind of thing. While we're on the side of right, so the moral high matter. horse, yeah, yeah, we're absolutely right about different rules apply. Yeah, and so they feel they have a right to call people bigots and racists and all sorts, when actually that, if we talk about harm in quotes, for someone who isn't a racist, that is a very harmful accusation because it holds a lot of weight in the society. So for them to then complain that they're getting quote-unquote harmful uh, responses to them, it's all very ironic. And I think... The kind of lesson here is that maybe in expecting others to respect their right to free speech, if Hendy and Wiles avoided instigating any more public uh, mobs against those they don't agree with, um, we'd all be better off. And if That'd the be university really appreciated, yeah. yeah, and if the university had some robust policies that said, look, we back our academics, we protect them from threat. But, you know, we back them to get in and have robust debates about their issues. We don't accept them cancelling each other. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it's kind of just indicative of the whole um, academic space at the moment, much like councils. It's very political <laughs> and, um, and a bit of a power tussle. Well, that's right. And, 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 and what we and, need to really push into here is the fact mm. that... Um, the answer to this, the answer to all speech issues is not to control, it is not to shut down, it's counter speech. Really, mm-hmm. we, we promote the conversation, we promote good, healthy debate, and that is how issues get resolved, that's how conversations move forward. You know, uh, pile-ons happen when you mm-hmm. when you make public comments, that's part of life. And, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, Sean Hendy and Susie Wells have the right to call Dr. Garth Cooper racist if they want. It's, a, it's an incredibly ironic comment. They have that right. What they don't have a right to do is try and cancel his right to speech because they think he's a racist. And so that's really where the imbalance is coming from. And I've heard that, you know, people are taking this situation with Hendy and Wiles and saying, well, this is 
is why we need hate speech laws. This is why we need to protect people. And you're like, well, that's this is the mm. opposite. That is, again, you're just buying into this more and more, and it just makes it harder and harder to actually have an open, productive conversation. Yeah, and I, I, it seems that solutions are um, fall on political um, side. So if um, these two are much are pro government, they're on the left. Um, then they expect government to get involved and have hate speech laws. Um, when I speak, um, they probably wouldn't like a lot of what I have to say, um, but they'd be, they're probably quite happy for me to get called all the names under the sun. And that's the difference, is that we need to approach this with a blanket, um, apolitical lens of speech as speech um, and, you know, if someone's threatening to kill me or Susie, we should have equally Absolutely outside of it. And you yep. know what? Yeah. I will say the Free Speech Union has done a very good job at that. And mm. why? Because I've been called both a Nazi and a communist. <laughs> <laughs> and that that actually does show you that we're doing something right. That's I know, right. haven't you guys? Like, we've been accused of, of being just for lesbian feminists at one point, and I was like, that's news to me. <laughs> We only defend lesbians. Because we've also been called homophobes. So, um, yeah. you know, th- th- these are the ironies that abound. Hey, guys, it's been it's been great to chat with you through here today. Um, I think this is helpful just as we consider that these, these uh, issues that we're dealing with are really substantial threats to some of our most basic freedoms. And that's why the Free Speech Union exists across political perspectives, across cultural um, ideologies and backgrounds and beliefs. We exist to defend the right of people to make their case, no matter what that case may be. And so we can't do this without our supporters. We appreciate those who make it possible. And and we encourage you, share the newsletter around, share this podcast around. Let's make it uh, a real cultural institution again to support free speech, to promote the discussion and to let people have their say. But Dane, uh, Annie, thanks very much for joining us, guys. Thank you. Lovely to chat. Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Ka kite anō.